Every August, a giant migration takes place in the world of theatre. Hundreds of thousands of people rush from all over the world to come here to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, the largest arts festival in the world. It's hard to believe that Scotland doesn't sink slightly deeper into the Atlantic with a number of actors, comedians, dancers, musicians, technicians, cabaret artists and promoters who descend on the city to ply their wares and the audience members who come to watch them. The Fringe is 70 years old this summer, and on today's episode of the podcast, we've come to give it a closer look. Hello, you're listening to the National Theatre Podcast. I'm Sam Sedgman. When we told people we were making an episode about the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, we always got the same response. Everyone we spoke to seemed to have a story about something they were in, something they saw. Edinburgh is a huge part of our cultural ecosystem. But what does Edinburgh, the city, make of the festival? My name is Ali and I'm head of marketing campaigns at the National Theatre. And where did you grow up? I grew up in Edinburgh. Before we talk about the Fringe, I want to know what Edinburgh, how you would describe Edinburgh. Yeah all the months that mm. aren't August? Like, what's it like as a city? Yeah, yeah. So that's a, it's a good question because it, it completely transforms, obviously. So Edinburgh's an amazing city, but it's quite a sleepy city. Um, and it's a, it's an incredible place to grow up because it mixes kind of culture and there's countryside, you know, having Arthur's seat right in the heart of the city kind of does something to you mentally, having this kind of um, extinct volcano right there that you can scramble up. And the sea as well is the other thing. Um, so at the top of like Dundas Street, when you're standing right in the centre of Edinburgh, you can look directly onto the Firth of Forth. So it's it feels quite connected to the nature of Scotland, the landscape of Scotland, but then has a real um, kind of cultural beating heart. Uh, but it, it it's a small city. Um, and then what happens in August is a complete transformation I would say the come down in September is quite hard for everyone <laughs> because all the fun people seem to leave and <laughs> winter descends early north of the border and uh, yeah it suddenly kind of it, it feels September can be tough emotionally for everyone involved <laughs> <laughs> but that kind of implies that Edinburgh sees the festival as a fantastic thing. It's a great yeah. thing, not as this really annoying thing that comes in August and outstays its welcome. I mean, there's definitely, um, with any, anything like that, there's a bit of a, like, oh, festival. And you kind of, people get frustrated with um, with tourists and the hiking prices on some stuff. But generally, the, the mood of the city just is so it's so fun and it becomes really um there's a real energy and it's really it's really exciting because there is a, this population f- physically swells you know there's so many people around and it's such a kind of diverse mix of people as well um that everyone's kind of on board with it not long after hopping off the train in edinburgh nick emma and myself found ourselves on the royal mile the long cobbled street that cuts through the old town and which is full to bursting every year with performers handing out flyers and promoting their shows flyering on the mile is a fringe institution so we thought it was the perfect place to start here we are on the royal mile in edinburgh surrounded by lots of other people trying to get people to speak to them it's freezing it's It's so cold it's incredibly cold uh we're gonna go and try and find some people who'll talk to us uh in a sea of people wanting to do the same there is a woman over there with a panda on her head i think maybe can we go talk to panda lady let's go do that right shall we see 
Hello. Can we just talk to you about your experiences of flyering? You certainly can. So you, you are accompanied by a friend on your shoulders? Uh, friend is a strong word. He lives in my house. He's called Mr. Panda. He's, um, he's, so, he's a family friend. Can I say for the benefit of the podcast that he is a stuffed panda? This is not an actual human panda. Human panda and not an actual panda. <laughs> I'm panda. He comes on stage with me. He's part of my act. He's my comic partner. But in general, people do like to take flyers from uh, idiots with pandas on their shoulders. So uh, if I can give anyone any advice, it's get yourself a big panda. <laughs> What's the weirdest thing you've seen since you've been here? Within 10 minutes of being here, I saw two naked men and two naked women running up and down the street. We just saw a man crowd surfing, holding a fake broom and yelling, I'm like Harry Potter. So that was really interesting. I've never seen that before. Yeah, I'm not too sure if that was like a street performance or if it was just a weird or thing that happened. it was just happened. a random man. It's kind of hard to tell here. Yeah. What are the sort of weird, other weird things that you've seen going on? Have you got any good fringe stories? I like to play a game where I try and count to see how many people I see who've fallen asleep in a cafe. Uh, or perhaps on the street because, you know, around this time, half, a little over halfway through the fringe is when people, the tiredness really sets in and then there's a big leap of energy towards the end. But uh, yeah, there's been some, there's always some great things on the mile, especially. I think weird becomes the norm here. Yeah. So you're kind of, yeah, you're blind from it for after a while. Yeah. The weirdest thing is someone just sitting down having a coffee, yeah. normally. Yeah. <laughs> beige? You're wearing beige? <laughs> We weren't the only people from the National Theatre up at the Fringe this year. As the largest theatre festival in the world, it's a fantastic showcase of new talent. So naturally, a great number of NT staff go up each year to see what that year's programme has to offer. Rachel Twig is one of several members of the NT's new work department who'd come up to the Fringe to keep an eye on new and emerging theatre makers. We're here to see uh, lots of artists, lots of new work. We get a huge amount of invitations um, to shows in Edinburgh and it's a really unique opportunity for us to see artists that are maybe um, based a bit further away that it's harder for us to cover their work. What do you So when you go and see a show, either presumably by invitation or also there are some people that you're just aware of and you want to go out and see their work, what are you, what are you looking for when you go and watch those shows? Um, I would say the function of our, the National Theatre coming to Edinburgh is more about the long game so it's our it's our duty to know who the best and brightest um, artists and theatre makers are, who who may be you know coming into our frame of vision in five to ten years. A big focus of my role is to support the work of emerging directors. So my focus in Edinburgh is to see the work of those people. So they invite us to see the work. I have meetings with them, report back, and then. Uh, th those people can then be put forward for staff directing jobs. Um, staff directors are what we call assistant directors. And we have about 20 shows a year which we produce and I need to, my, you know, my job is to know who the best and the brightest of those directors are so that I can um, help get them through the door into the national. It's also really interesting from coming to a, a festival, you, you really get a sense of what sort of what's in the zeitgeist at the moment. And um, that's interesting, you know, and that's good for us. We, we need to know about that stuff and um, to know what's driving artists and, you know, what they're interested in making. How many shows do you see a day on average? The first day I saw seven shows. Is that not completely physically exhausting? Uh, yes, it means you don't have time to eat. Um, and if you do, you're like sort of 
stuffing a sandwich down, hoping no one sees you um, <laughs> out and about. Think, is that that woman from the Nationals stuffing a prawn sandwich down her throat? Um, yeah, so it's, yeah, it is full on. But, you know, I feel such a sense of duty that I need to, while I'm here, I need to see as much as I physically is is physically possible um because you know it's so expensive to put on a show it's so you know labor intensive for the artists and this might be their one shot that they have you know for us to cover their work Not everyone at Edinburgh is a seasoned pro, although it's the kind of place where you see companies making a name for themselves and coming back year after year, nothing ever quite compares to that first time. Because for a lot of people, coming to the Fringe is their first taste of theatre making on a large scale. We are the Northern Youth Theatre Project and we're here at the Fringe. We've been performing Bassett by James Graham, which we first did for the National Theatre Connections Festival. Connections is the National Theatre's nationwide youth theatre festival. Companies from all over the country put on productions of plays written specifically for young people. Bassett is one of them. We met these guys in the very windy Prince's Street Gardens. They were a big bunch, all different ages, the oldest around 21 and the youngest only 11. It was their last day at the Fringe and we spoke to them as they waited to get on the bus home, making their way through an enormous pile of pizza to celebrate a job well done. What have your audiences been like? Um, we've had more than we expected. I think we were kind of prepared to just have sort of 10, 15 people. Um, no, we did quite well. I think we, we had around sort of 40 to 60. Um, it kind of, we, we were in quite a big venue because obviously we need a big stage to fit all 20 members of cast on at once, which meant we were always going to have sort of a bigger venue than we expected to fill. Uh, but yeah, no, I think we were, we were pretty happy with how it turned out. I heard that you've been out flyering on the Royal Mile like every good Edinburgh show has to do. Has it been tough doing it in all weathers? I think it's been alright, uh, but when it rains, it rains a lot. But it's, it's usually a shower, so it goes quite quickly. But no, it's quite good because even though you're still flying and like even if it's windy like it is now, it's still quite good because there's still loads of people out and about like interested in what you've got. So it has been a struggle at times, but it's also been like a really good experience, definitely. What's it been like to obviously you're in you're all in this kind of group together and you've worked on plays before, but what's it been like to come away from home and spend several days just working on this one thing? What's that experience been like? I think it's been very fun and it's actually been a giant uh, jump from our last performance which we were just doing uh, uh, lo locally at Northern Stage in, and uh, uh, when people said uh, you were brilliant after it just made me feel very happy. I think it's definitely been a, a good experience to actually be a part of putting a show on at Fringe and being part of something a lot bigger than we've been used to. Um, so there's been, it's sort of the longest run of a play that I've been involved with before. And so I think sort of coming up, the different challenges that sort of came with different performances, even though it was the same show, sort of being able to adapt to that was something that I definitely learned to do better than I used to be able to. How did it feel being part of that great big group of other venues and other performances? It's just such a huge opportunity. Because when you see everyone come into the fringe and then for us to be performing in it, it's just like... I don't know, it's just so, it's like such a big deal really. 
when I came to Edinburgh like to do my first show about I think it must have been 10 years ago now it, what it gave me was that kind of real like all-encompassing sense of um, you're not just performing you're like kind of you're really involved in the show you're all like kind of mucking in together has it made you feel like more a part of the show than you would have if you were just kind of acting um yeah I guess because I feel like when you see like audiences come in that like you've spoken to early in the day it's like you feel like you've kind of like drawn them there you know so it's quite like satisfying. What's the high point then? Uh, just uh, getting to perform at the Edinburgh Fringe, one of the biggest festivals in the world. I like, I do like the flyering on the uh, Royal Mile as well. As it's like you get the the feeling that you're really a part of this big thing when you're among everybody else. For young people, that first time at the Edinburgh Fringe can be really special. It's often the light bulb moment where people get that first taste of something that they'll go on to do for a living later in life. I was at university in Durham. This is Cressida. She works in the development office here at The National. And um, I heard that there were lots of theatre groups taking productions to Edinburgh and actually being at Durham, it wasn't that far away (laughs) for (laughs) once. And um, I thought, yeah, that sounds good. I like theatre. I like going to the theatre. It sounds like a good thing to go to Edinburgh. How do I get to go? And being in a production seemed like an easy way of doing it. I auditioned. I got the part miraculously because I'm a terrible actor. It was really badly cast. (laughs) (laughs) Had you done any theatre before? Was this like your first experience? Yeah. Apart from school theatre, it really was. And I was somebody who knew that I love theatre and I love reading plays. But going to the Fringe, it was really the first time that I actually got to see what goes into making a show happen. I was someone who sort of hadn't put myself forward for things previously and hadn't been involved in a production. And so to see that you need a producer and you need someone who does marketing and you need a budget was actually, I'm embarrassed to say it now, quite an eye opener. And it was um, as somebody who didn't know anyone in theatre um, in my in growing up, it was a really nice to find out that there were things that I might do as a career in theatre that weren't just being on stage. Uh, my name is Simon Maida. I'm Frude Jarlov. And I'm Maria Askew. And we are Superbolt Theatre. Um, you've got quite a good flyering setup here. You've got the baby, you've got the celebrations that you're giving out, the chocolates. I love that Nick introduces a baby and a box of chocolates and thinks that it's the chocolates that need explaining. Um, these guys were carrying around a doll in a spacesuit as one of the ways to promote their show. It's probably a good indication of how weird the Royal Mile is that none of us thought to ask about it. How are you finding that? How are you finding the flyering in that experience? Um, We actually have an even better trick, which is our T-Rex Tina, who's an inflatable T-Rex that we carry on our shoulders, and she's spectacular. She loves showing off and attacking people, uh, and then uh, people are, yeah, taken aback and impressed, and they're running to see the show. So we're really happy with that strategy. Um, This is also just really really lovely. It's easy to get talking to people when they get celebrations. Yeah, Yeah, it's all about just trying to get something onto the mile or onto the streets of Edinburgh that catches the eye and then engage in conversation and, and tell people a little bit about what you do. And it's, it's strange because there are so many companies and so many shows but we've never really found a sense of competition. It, what we've found is more of a sense of support. You know, all the artists are here supporting each other. Everyone tweets about each other's reviews. Everyone says how great the, the shows that they've been seeing are. And, you know, you ask anyone 
what their recommendations are and they'll give you a list of five five other things and they probably won't even talk about their own show um, it is really it's all about love and support and we try and we try and encourage that as well hello thank you for taking time out of what is undeniably a busy time I should be flying right now <laughs> so can you tell us first of all introduce yourself and the show that you're in so my name is Chris Woodley uh, and I'm the founder of hyphen theatre company we're doing a show called the soft subject we're halfway through and feeling a little bit tired as part of the four hours flyering before doing a warm-up and then doing a one-man show. You mentioned about trying to get the audiences in and flyering, and that is obviously a massive Edinburgh institution as everyone out on the Royal Mile flyering. But we've walked here, we've walked down in the last 10 minutes, we've been flied about a million times. What do you do to make yourself stand out on the mile? We've been flyering from like 12.30 till 3.30. But also the other thing in order to try and create some kind of awareness about this show is it's a show that's kind of LGBT themed, mental health themed, and we've written a lot for Gay Times, MQ Mental Health, Mind. It's a show supported by Old Vic Lab, so we wrote a blog for them. So actually, we are doing lots of hand-to-hand flyering and uh, getting out in the streets and doing that. But we've actually noticed that when you have an article appear, your sales kind of go up by five maybe that evening or that afternoon and we sort of feel like creating the social media using social media has been super super useful to boost numbers talking about social media and how that's changed how many times have you been here before and have you noticed other changes what changes have you seen in the fringe in that time so it's my first time at the fringe um both of my actors have been before um they've both done shows previously but um in from what they're saying they presence on the streets seems quieter. I'm not sure whether that's a weather thing or not, but people are engaging a lot more. We've been able to get reviewers in through Twitter. We've got a lot of our primary demographic. I think we boost sales every day just by engaging people on social media. Um, when that, I think that's maybe the biggest difference is that it's not all about, it doesn't matter that we're a company of three. We can still have the same presence as another company just by doing it in a slightly different way, which is quite nice for us because we have no budget to employ 50 flyers every day like a much bigger venue does we have to rely on having a strong story and a presence no matter where that might be Fringe plays host to shows of all shapes and sizes, not just the work of fresh-faced newcomers putting on plays out of a suitcase, but also more polished material produced by established companies. This year, that included the National Theatre of Scotland, whose show Adam, which tells the story of a transgender man fleeing Egypt and making a new life for himself in Glasgow, was programmed at the Traverse Theatre. I'm Cora Bisse. I'm uh, the director on the production Adam. I'm an associate director at the National Theatre of Scotland as well. So tell me why uh, the Edinburgh Fringe is a good destination for this show. What is it about the Fringe that makes this show a good fit for it? It's very specific to Scotland. It's it's a story of an Egyptian boy that somehow ends up in Glasgow and is now a real Glasgow boy, you know. Adam's got this wonderful mix of a kind of Egyptian, slightly transatlantic Glaswegian accent going on now. And and Scotland very much is his home. So he, he feels like our story. He feels like a story from Scotland. How Scottish is the fringe? I think that's tricky. Um, I think uh, I think certainly... It's difficult for any company to, to put a show on at the fringe. It's expensive. It's really hard to get space. The higher the higher fees are extremely uh, 
prohibitive for a lot of people. Um, and that's even if you're doing a little one-person show in a you know in a room somewhere. That that room's still going to cost you. Um, most people don't make money at the fringe. So. If you're just a Scottish hardworking artist that doesn't have a big company like NTS behind you, um, it's hard for you to get in and play the fringe. Um, the Made in Scotland uh, fund is a brilliant initiative uh, supported by the government, which um, you can you can apply for money to help get your your work on show. And that was set up to address the fact that a lot of Scottish artists were just kind of being priced out of the of the party. How do you think the fringe is changing, or has changed in the last few years, and what can we expect from it in the future? I think there was a big awareness that the whole comedy side of the fringe seemed to have taken over. I, I, I remember a lot of kind of kind of not grumbles but a lot of I guess people in the theatre world saying oh god it's just become this huge commercialised you know big money event where comedians who are on the telly anyway are coming and, and doing their big shows um, and, and it's sort of gone away from the essence of people of, of, of theatre and of people coming with, with you know profound and interesting and um, uh, new ideas to put out there. Um, that sounds like I'm really anti-comedy. I'm not. I love, I love live comedy. But um, you know, if we're going back to the to the start of the French, which really was about about theatre. Yeah. Um, I I don't know if if the balance is completely tipped, but I certainly think there's been. I think Summerhall has done a lot to address kind of really grassroots stuff. I mean, the Traverse puts on brilliant work every year, um, but possibly Summerhall is 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 allowing a lot of those really grassroots kind of voices to come through, and it's become a real exciting hub of of um, yeah, pretty provocative work. I think, um, I th- and there, I think there's umpteen venues that are that are also doing that. I think I think maybe the balance is redressing. It'd be interesting to hear what other people think and that's just going from a kind of gut feeling of I, I certainly don't feel theatres dying away yeah. at all. It can be prohibitive and expensive to come mm-hmm. to the Fringe but a lot of people who come to the Fringe are here to kind of put work on uh, at a larger scale than they normally would to a bigger audience than they'd normally have access to to kind of try work out for the first time. It's part of their development process of kind of, of, of bringing their work to life. Yeah. You're producing work from a very different angle. You're an established company producing work at a very high level. How is it that the Fringe can accommodate both of those things at once? Because historically, the Fringe was kind of the spin-off of the International Festival, and it was for people who weren't part of the establishment. And now here you are, the National Theatre of Scotland, producing flagship shows at the Fringe. What, in your eyes, is, is kind of the Fringe for today, 70 years after it was started? I think it's for many different things. Um, sure, the NTS is a, is a, a you know a, a big recognised company now, but there's always risk within the work. I don't you know we we don't just pull out classics and put them on with ten strong in the cast. That's never been part of the agenda. So I think perhaps it was it, it, it allows the NTS to kind of take a gamble with their work as well and still be true to those urgent stories that the company is set up to present. When you're trying to stand out from the crowd at the Fringe, a good review can be a godsend. Four stars and a pull quote will go a long way towards getting you an audience, so critics are always in demand. Matt Truman reviews shows regularly for The Guardian, The New Statesman and The Stage, and was kind enough to have coffee with us for five minutes despite clearly not having much free time at all. How many shows do you see when you're up here, and is it completely physically exhausting? 
Uh, the answer to the second part of that is yes, absolutely. Uh, I see, I'm up for the whole month, have been for the last um, five years, and in that time I will see between 90 and 120 shows in about, what, 25 days. Is there a sense of expectation that in order to develop yourself as a new company or a new piece of work, you kind of have to come to the fringe? Is it an essential part of getting noticed? I think it probably is, you know. Like, um, and that's kind of a real shame because for all that it talks of being an open access festival, there are all sorts of barriers to access, uh, the prime one being cost. Um, the the cost of performing up here can really mount up. Um, and the support that you need to, to be produced up here, to get your work up here, is is quite a tricky thing. But there's a really interesting conversation knocking around this year about emerging artists. Um, Total Theatre put their shortlists out yesterday. Um, and Total Theatre see, I think it was 538 shows. And they've always had this category that is emerging artists. And you will regularly get four, five, six emerging companies on that list. And this year only two have been selected to, to go up for that prize, which is the smallest I've ever known it. And there is a real sense that um, that the quality of work that emerging artists have brought up perhaps hasn't quite tipped into that, that level where it really is holding up. I want to ask about the identity of the Fringe as a whole. We were talking on the way over here about how when people say the Edinburgh Festival, they mean the Fringe Festival. They don't mean the Edinburgh International Festival, which was what the Fringe originally spun off from. And I guess there's a sense that a lot of the... You say that a lot of the shows you see at the Fringe are maybe a bit rough around the edges and not fully polished, but there are a lot of shows here that are incredibly well put together, and we've heard some people say, not really a Fringe show. Do you think that the Fringe is still a Fringe festival, or has it become something else? Is it still fulfilling the need that it sought to fill when it first spun off as an alternative to the establishment? I think uh, there's a context to that, which is that the mainstream of British theatre has changed fundamentally over the last 15 years. Um, and, you know, even if you go back a decade to the point where Nihai were coming into the National and Complicite were in the National, well, Complicite, you know, they grew out of the Edinburgh Fringe. And um, the idea that they could be on stage at the National or the Barbican, or even in the West End with a disappearing number, um, those kind of old binaries have collapsed a bit. The fringe as its identity, I think, is that open access, that sense that everyone, if you can find someone to take your show on, anyone can, can bring a show up here. Um, that has broken down a bit. Um, as the number of curated programmes has increased up here, um, there is a sense that to be discovered you kind of almost already have to have been discovered mm. um, so if you're a young company you kind of need some level of, um, of backing in order to be kind of in a high enough, enough profile position within the fringe to get promoters and critics and um, kind of just to be visible now but it does mean, perhaps, that it's harder for those companies that 
aren't in that circuit, that sector of the industry, to come up and just make a splash. Harder but not impossible. That's one of the great things about it. I mean, you can turn up at a venue here and see something and just go, God, I really wasn't expecting that. And you know what? I think it's really brilliant. It's a lovely part of the fringe. As Matt mentioned, the cost of accessing the fringe is a real issue for performers and punters alike. And it was something that came up again and again with everyone we spoke to on the mile. The living situation is, is, is good, you know, we've got a flat, uh, it's quite central, it's not cheap, it never is. No matter, pretty, pretty much wherever you are staying in Edinburgh during the fringe, the prices for normal rent get jacked up by, I think, about times three, um, at least. And so, it's just something that, it's a cost that we're used to now. I wish, we, I wish it wasn't the case, but the fringe is expensive for everyone, for punters, for artists. For everyone who stays here, it's it's an expensive time. But on top of that, it's incredible. I mean, we'll, we keep coming back for a reason, and it's because it's the best festival in the world. It's the biggest festival in, in arts festival in the world. And uh, the, the cost of it, I guess, is just one of those things that you have to do. Yeah. Sometimes experimenting with new shows at the Fringe doesn't go so well. Sometimes it goes very well. And sometimes it produces an undeniable runaway hit. In 2015, the National Theatre of Scotland premiered their new show, Our Ladies of Perpetual Sucker. It's a play about six Catholic schoolgirls from Oban who come to Edinburgh to take part in a choir competition and end up set loose on the streets of the capital with hilarious hijinks, plentiful drinking and lots and lots of swearing. The show was a wild success and went on to tour internationally, including a run at the Dorfman Theatre here at the National. Last week it ended its three-month run in the West End, more than two years after its first performance at the Traverse in Edinburgh. This is The Fringe Fairy Tale, the show that starts with a two-week run at the festival and ends up touring the world. We went to the Duke of York's Theatre in the West End, talked to the cast of the show and find out what the experience was like for them. We opened at the Traverse Theatre at the Edinburgh Fringe 2015. We opened halfway through the Fringe, so it had been on for a couple of weeks before we got there, which meant everybody was already in Fringe mode, which is always helpful. Um, and yeah, we uh, obviously at the Trav, the way that they work their schedule, you're on at different times every day, um, so that all the shows just rotate. So sometimes you're at 10 in the morning, sometimes you're at 9 o'clock at night. And obviously our show's quite a wild night out kind of a show. So nine o'clock at night, great. Ten in the morning, sometimes people are not quite ready for hooch and swearing and lots of other things. But I like to think we set up their fringe day quite nicely. Mm-hmm. Starting like that, you can't go wrong, really. Um, and obviously we'd been shut away in a room rehearsing it with no idea what, you know, what the audience might think when we unleashed it on everybody. But I don't think any of us could have imagined that the absolute mayhem that became the, I don't know, I don't even know how to describe what it was, just this sort of weird, massive party celebration of this show that we had created and the fringe where we thought we would do our show at whatever time and then head off home became a fringe full of, we're going to do the show and then we're going to go to the BBC and do a bit there and then we're going to go to this awards ceremony and then we're going to do this interview and the fringe, the two weeks that we were there just became absolutely mental. (laughs) Yeah, I want to know, at what point did you realise you were part of something special? Probably the second we finished the first show. So, like, 
we sang our last line and the lights went down and just like the response was just mental but walking out into a full kind of bar and foyer of people that were just like oh my god what is this what have you created we've never seen anything like this before congratulations it was all just like a celebration like Caroline said walking in to do the show at the Traverse and there was a returns queue I was like oh I wonder what they're waiting to get tickets for and it was us and it's like, seriously? We'd sold out in the two weeks and just couldn't believe that people were standing in line to see if there was hours, tickets. Hours. Yeah. The Fringe is obviously this kind of white hot furnace of everyone's giving it their all. You're getting up at crazy hours. You're working all day. And a lot of people we spoke to in Edinburgh were physically, psychologically exhausted. <laughs> and part of the thing that gets you through that is that it will end in a couple of weeks. This show sort of didn't end for you guys. <laughs> we had, um, so we finished. I can't even remember what it felt like when we finished The Fringe. Like, we, So we had a sort of um, smallish Scottish tour planned. So it was sort of two or three nights in each place and venues around Scotland. Just the responses we had were were amazing. I guess that's why I don't remember The Fringe because it sort of kept rolling like an extended fringe in a way. It was, It was sort of nuts and... I mean, that was quite exhausting as well, especially when you're sort of getting into a new place and doing, doing the travelling and you get, you've got to do your dress and stuff. But, um, yeah, I guess it's a, just a different kind of fatigue from fringe. Fringe fatigue's just, like, its own special thing, isn't it? We did, like, a run at the live theatre in Newcastle because it was a co-pro with them because, obviously, our amazing Lee Hall, who adapted it, is from Newcastle and totally intertwined into that building. But um, then we took it to... We did a national tour, so we were taking it to the big theatres. So moving from that tiny space at the Trav, where you feel like you're in amongst the audience, and then when we started playing like Brighton, Brighton the Theatre Royal in Newcastle, which is like like here but triple the size. You're talking like fifteen hundred people or whatever, and then you've got a proscenium march, and it all becomes very classical and very very fitted. And then we went to Connecticut. <laughs> it was an amazing festival we played there called the Festival of Festival of Arts and Ideas which was just up the coast from New York. Um, and it was How did the swearing go down in Connecticut? Not very well. <laughs> had to take some out. We had to remove some of the sea uh, bombs because uh, <laughs> they were, well, frowned upon a little bit. We added, we added a full 10 minutes onto the running time as well for speaking slower. I had no idea what, what you said, but I loved it. We are like, oh, well, that's good. But also, like, the drinking culture, I guess, and, like, the religious aspects of it in that environment are just very different from Scotland, for sure, mm. Britain. Um, yeah, it was, like, every every place has been experienced, so, like, we went to Melbourne, and the Melbourne Festival was crazy. Amazing. They loved it, and Galway. But then, like, places like Liverpool that I personally expected to be, like, quite raucous was was quieter than you'd expect. Um, and it was, you just never know what you're gonna get, but that's good, I think. Mm. Um, what was it, I guess, like when you first started off The Fringe, it was very much like, this is a show in a fringe and your sense of what you're doing is is one kind of thing. And then I saw the show in the Dorfman at the National. And I guess when you come to perform at the National Theatre, this show has suddenly become this very different thing. How did your understanding of what this show meant change as you went through that process? I was just going to say the content of the show, we've always been encouraged all along that the show is what it always was. So we, it was really important that we didn't become too aware of the fact that we were doing it in 
you know, bigger venues that were maybe a little more traditional or that we were doing it for a bigger audience or that we were doing it at, you know, the National Theatre and what that meant. Because at the end of the day, the reason that the show got taken to all these places is because of the success it was when it was just the show at the Fringe. Mm. And because it's got that kind of feel about it, the, the whole design that Chloe's created as well is, you know, a dirty pub with really mismatched stools and mismatched bottles and... There's something really fringe about that, like you've grabbed stuff out your granny's garage and your uncle's shed, and there's something really fringe about that, but that's also what our show is now, and that hasn't been lost wherever we've gone, right up till being here at the Duke of York's. And I think that kind of rough around the edges thing about our show is part of what makes it such, such a success and it makes it stand out from everything else that's on. We don't have any bits of set, you know, curtains flying in. We don't have any big trucks coming on. We just have that dirty set and those stools and those bottles that we've always had. So although the buzz around the show has gotten bigger and bigger and we've been to the Olivier's and we got all dolled up for that and we've done, you know, opened at the West End and all that kind of thing, the actual content of the show and what we do has always had to stay the same because that's what the show is and that's what we created from the beginning. Well, well, I mean, I haven't performed at the Fringe before. That was my first ever time. I just think it's... um, Obviously, the Edinburgh Festival, the Fringe, is a worldwide phenomenon. It's amazing that... And so it makes me so unbelievably proud to be Scottish, to know that something like that goes on in my... You know, where I come from. People from all over the world tiny places on the world, people that are paying their way to make, to, to, to find an audience there. Such an amazing, welcoming, happy, gorgeous circle to be in. And I think that just by it coming from, a lot of people at the National Theatre of Scotland, this is what, you know, that's what we do anyway. It's about making it and bringing it to the people and not about selling, selling out a commercial run for however many people in the West End or doing festivals all over the world, it's for that very specific reason of just taking it to the festival to share stories yeah. and celebrate acting, dance, comedy, people. And I just think that it's that made it, that's made it what it is. If we'd made it to go and run at the Duke of York's Theatre for three months, it would have been a very different thing. Mm. So the reason why people are coming out of the Duke of York's Theatre, celebrating this and saying it's the best thing since sliced bread, is because we made it for the festival. That's our show for today. Thank you all for coming to The Fringe with us. I'm sure plenty of you listening will have Edinburgh stories of your own and we would love to hear them. You can do that by sending us a tweet with the hashtag NTPodcast. Let us know what you thought of the show and if you liked it, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts to help us find new listeners. This episode was produced and edited by the marvellous Emma Reedy and was presented and co-produced by me, Sam Sedgman, with help from our social content editor, Nick Mulligan. Our executive producer was Kate Moore and our music was by Alex Painter. A huge thank you to our breathtakingly long list of contributors this week. Rachel Twigg, Ali Forbes, Cressida Peaver, the Northern New Theatre Project, Matt Truman, Cora Bissett, the cast of Our Ladies of Perpetual Sucker and the dozens and dozens of brilliant, tired, delightful people who shared their time with us on the streets of Edinburgh. We'll be back in a fortnight with our next show and until then goodbye